Chronicles chapter 8 this evening in our journey through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you just wave to them. They'll get a Bible into your hands, and you'll be able to not only hear the teaching tonight, but be able to follow along with your own eyes with a Bible in your own hands, which is always the best way. When we come now to... uh, Chapter 8, Solomon has uh, concluded the single greatest accomplishment of his reign, which was the privilege of being able to build uh, a temple to the Lord. So he now begins to move. He has literally the mountaintop experience of his life relatively early in his reign. And so now he's going to move and with the remainder of his reign, move from temple building to nation building. And so in chapter eight, we get a description of Solomon kind of settling down into some of the more uh, mundane uh, responsibilities that he had uh, as a king. I think that it's important as we see it in Solomon's life, and it doesn't matter whether he had become kind of the apostate or the backslider that he did become, or whether he had walked with the Lord uh, consistently all of his life, which he, he didn't do. But I think that it's important to realize for all of us in all of our lives and in all of our ministries that there are mountaintop experiences, there are valleys, and then for the most part, most of life in Christian ministry is something in between. It is... Uh, the daily of life, it is the daily rhythm of ministry based upon the calling and the gifting that God has uh, given to you. I think that we fall sometimes into a trap as Christians uh, if, we're, if we have the expectation that every day or every event in our Christian life is going to be comparable to the dedication of the temple to the Lord. And you see people that are uh, Christians who are kind of misguided related to this expectation where they run from, you know, one great meeting to another meeting to another meeting to another meeting in an attempt to um, experience, you know, some new higher thing than what they've experienced. And the expectation is that all of the Christian life will always be a mountaintop experience. But that uh, isn't really uh, realistic. And sometimes people spend their whole lives searching for this kind of a thing that they never settle down and accomplish the quiet, practical thing that God has called them to do and accomplish for his glory in the world. I, I can re, I'd like to read you an illustration that has been helpful to me. Your calling is perhaps a different calling than mine. But in this very same regard, the Lord brings this to my remembrance every once in a while when sometimes we'll put I'll put pressure on myself to try to accomplish some kind of great thing or top something else. Or I don't sense that you come with any great expectations uh, of me, but of the Lord. But here's a, a churchgoer wrote a letter to the editor of the newspaper, and he complained that it made no sense to go to church every Sunday. He wrote, I've gone for 30 years now, and in that time I've heard something like 3,000 sermons, and for the life of me I can't remember a single one. It sounds like my Monday. (laughs) So I think I'm wasting my time, and the pastors are wasting theirs by giving sermons at all. Well, it really started quite a controversy in the letters to the editor section of of the newspaper. And, of course, the editor loves that kind of a controversy. So it went on for weeks until someone finally wrote uh, this letter. I've been married for 30 years now. And in that time, my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals. But for the life of me, I can't recall what the menu was for a single one of those meals. But I do know this. They nourished me. And they gave me the strength I needed to do my work. If my wife had not given me those meals, I'd be dead today. (laughs) And there were no more comments made uh, on that particular issue in that newspaper. So it might be a little self-serving on my part today, but 
that is my world, but it carries over really into all areas of life. It won't always be, you know, the, the glory of the dedication of the temple, but it is always glorious because we walk with the Lord no matter what it is that he's called us to do. So his accomplishments are listed here. Chapter eight, verse one, it came to pass at the end of 20 years. Solomon rules for 40 years. So this is the halfway point that Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house. The temple took seven years to build. His new palace took 13 years to build. It was at this time that the cities which Hiram had given to Solomon, Solomon built them and he settled the children of Israel there. We remember earlier in the historical books that Solomon had given Hiram uh, a collection of cities up in the region of the Galilee, the northern region of Israel, in payment for the expertise and for the cedar wood and all that was required for the building uh, of the temple. And when Hiram saw those cities, he went to spy them out to see how great they were. He was not impressed with those cities. He despised them. He paid the purchase price for them, the uh, uh, the gold that was required for him to, to purchase that 120 talents of gold for them. But eventually Solomon realized that Hiram was displeased with them. And so he took the cities back. He rebuilt them and then he settled Israelites in them uh, once more. So Solomon saw the potential of these cities that Hiram uh, didn't see. Hiram had a lot of gifts, but. Uh, the possibility of these cities was something that really only Solomon could see. So this was a part of one of his accomplishments. And Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and he seized it. Hamath Zobah, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And probably David had some kind of a treaty with uh, Hamath Zobah uh, as a uh, kind of a uh, they had put themselves subservient to the nation of Israel. When Solomon becomes the new king, they look at this as an opportunity to break away from that kind of relationship. They probably attempted to do it. And Solomon reestablished his authority in the relationship. He also built Tadmor uh, in the wilderness. And so this uh, Tadmor was a desert oasis that. Uh, a trading center that was on the main highway to Mesopotamia, which was a main trade route in those days, uh, as things would be carried by uh, caravan and by camels and all. And so uh, he established these fortified or these kind of uh, strong cities along the whole trade route in order to protect the trade uh, industry, which he taxed heavily himself and profited from uh, heavily. And so uh, this was uh, part of his establishment of all that. And he also built all of the storage cities, uh, which he uh, built in Hamath. He built Upper Beth Haran, Lower Beth Haran, fortified cities with walls and gates and bars. And so he committed himself in kind of the vernacular of today to improving the infrastructure of the nation of Israel, better roads, better storage cities for uh, storing up grain, water, these kinds of things in case of an emergency, um, cities of military cities to protect the nation a little more effectively from uh, being invaded. And so he brought national security to uh, a level that it had never known before so that all of the citizens of Israel could feel that they were safe in their land and well protected by their government. And not even the citizens of our country uh, feel that. Certainly on the southern border, they don't feel that way. So here is Solomon. He is he understands what's important to people uh, as a king, the safety of the people, uh, taking care of them in terms of, of provision and all. And he had the wisdom to provide that uh, to them. Also, uh, Baalath and all of the stored cities that Solomon had and all the chariot cities, the cities of the cavalry, all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon and all of the land of his dominion and all the people who were left in the land of Israel, of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, Jebusites who were not of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel did not destroy, 
From these, Solomon raised up forced labor as it is to this day. So Solomon in his building projects, and it's going to create a little bit of problem for his son later on. So it's important for us to recognize Solomon, when he did complete the building of that temple, he then moved on to all of these other building projects. Um, They had a alien, foreign uh, peoples that were in the land that um, had kind of. Uh, uh, been their nations had been conquered. They chose to continue to live in Israel, but it was a forced labor kind of arrangement that, that was there. And Solomon continued to use them on all of these other building uh, projects. Probably, again, as we saw with the temple, that they would be used for the building projects for a certain part of the year, allowed to return home, work their farms, uh, provide a living, and, and that kind of a cycle. Solomon also, he didn't make servants of the Jews in the same way for this kind of work, but he did draft them into his military, and it was a significant military. Some of them were men of war. He made some of them captains of his officers, captains of his chariots, uh, and uh, of his cavalry. And others were chiefs of the officials of King Solomon, 250 who ruled over the people. Now Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh up from the city of David to the house that he had built for her. For he said, my wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because uh, the places to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. We'll return to that in a moment. We'll continue his um, Great accomplishments. This was not a great accomplishment. Verse 12. And then Solomon, he offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the vestibule, according to the daily rate, offering according to the commandment of Moses for the Sabbath, the new moons, the three appointed yearly feasts, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of weeks and the feast of tabernacles. So he makes sure that the temple's not only been built, but now all of the sacrifices and everything that was required according to the law of Moses, would be established. It was put in place. It was well supported. And so uh, that was done to his credit. And according to the order of David, his father, he appointed the division of the priests for their service, the Levites for their duties, to praise and to serve before the priests as the duty of each day required, and the gatekeepers by their divisions at each gate. For so David, the man of God, had commanded and they did not depart from the command of the king to the priests and Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasuries. And so David honored the or or Solomon honored the requirements or the the desires of his father in uh, all of this. Now, all of the work of Solomon was well ordered. So he he liked it. He liked to do stuff and he liked things to be done very, very well. So they were well ordered from the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord until it was finished. And so the house of the Lord was completed. And then Solomon went to Ezion, Geber and Elaph on the sea coast in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent him ships by the hand of his servants and servants who knew the sea. And they went with the servants of Solomon to Ophir and acquired 450 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. And so uh, Solomon uh, uh, finished the temple. He uh, then established uh, a, a his, he was the only king of Israel who was successful in establishing a little bit of, an, of a navy or kind of a, a maritime trade, uh, you know, ship kind of deal. You know what the right word is. So the Jews were not historically uh, naval people. They just didn't engage in that. They were uh, strong on the land, didn't have a great interest in the sea. But Hiram uh, from Lebanon had a relationship with Solomon. He helped uh, Solomon build ships, also provided him with skilled mariners to be coupled with Solomon's uh, men in order to go to different uh, places around the world and and to be a part of uh, much of the trade that was happening by ship. And so uh, this happened uh, un- under Solomon, and uh, and it was there in Ezion Geber, verse 17, and also Elath. So it's um, 
sometimes called the Gulf of Elat today, or uh, if you're uh, speaking of this area down by um, the Red Sea, it's uh, talking about, uh, if, you, if you view it, that's what you would call it if you were a Jew. If you were a Jordanian, you would look at it and you would say it was the Gulf of Aqaba. So made famous by Lawrence of Arabia, uh, the movie, uh, the taking of Aqaba from the Turks. Anyway, enough about that. So this is what they began uh, to get themselves uh, involved in this. Uh, on one voyage alone, they imported 450 talents of gold at 17 tons of gold. So this was very, very lucrative, uh, even for Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or whoever. That was a lot of money in those days. Now we return here to uh, verse 11, and it's kind of significant because sandwiched right here in the middle of this chapter that lists all of Solomon's accomplishments, and they were significant, and there was a lot to be thankful for there. But here God gives his commentary concerning Solomon and the daughter of Pharaoh that he had taken uh, as his wife. Solomon had married her very early in his reign, and that was a violation of uh, God's law uh, for the kings. They were not to marry foreign idolatrous wives, and she was very much involved in idolatry. It's interesting in verse 11 that at this point Solomon still possesses a, a spiritual sensitivity to the Lord. He realizes that this wife that he has, who she worships, the idolatry that she is engaged in, that her presence down in the city of David, uh, while the temple was being made in the holy places and every in the holy instruments and furnishings associated with the temple, that somehow this was inconsistent to be building all of these things, producing all these things, and yet have a wife that was engaged in uh, idolatry here. And so uh, his the way that he dealt with it is that he realized it was improper for her to live in such close proximity to Israel's holy places, and so he just moved her into a different place where she wasn't so close to it. Now, this is a real sign of decay. I think tooth decay is a problem, uh, sin decay is a worse problem, a real sign of decay in Solomon's life, early decay, and it's a spot of willful disobedience against God's word, and, uh, and in the end, his disobedience in this area of his life is going to lead to his name being mud historically. It is going to absolutely destroy his legacy. I'll tell you something, a conscience is a terrible thing to waste. A conscience is a terrible thing to ignore. It's a privilege to have a conscience. A conscience isn't even something as high as the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Everyone is born with a conscience, uh, an innate sense of right and wrong in God's eyes, and the innate sense, the born with sense that I ought to always do right and I should never do wrong. So he he is feeling a violation of the word of God, but also a violation of his conscience. And when we're convicted by our conscience or even more so convicted by the Holy Spirit concerning the fact that we are doing something wrong, we're going to do one of two things with that conviction. We are either going to obey that conviction, recognize what I'm doing here is wrong. God is pulling me aside on this issue and he's beginning to chasten me on it. And I need to repent of my wrongdoing and do what his word says is right. Or I will harden my heart to the voice of God. And the problem with hardening my heart to the voice of God and to the voice of the Holy Spirit is that I begin then to um, grieve the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, if I do it long enough, I will harden my heart so much that I quench the Holy Spirit's ability to even speak to me in that area. The problem is, is that sin, even though I am hardening my heart to conviction related to that sin, the sin never ceases to work for my destruction. James wrote concerning sin that when it's full grown, it brings forth death. That's what sin desires to do in every one of our lives. It, it, it targets us for an early physical death, 
But even more importantly, it targets a spiritual death in our lives to destroy our personal relationship with the Lord. And so here is is Solomon here, and he would have been better off using this spiritual sensitivity uh, to repent, but he, he doesn't do that, and, uh, and, and he ends up becoming a man that, that he never figured he would, would ever become. And the fact that Solomon restricted her to this special residence uh, did not restrict her from leading him into idolatry. And he will go deeply into idolatry. So again, sin has to be properly dealt with. Because if I don't deal with it, it's like this uh, princess from Egypt. It will continue to work to lead me uh, into idolatry. So the importance of conscience, and even tonight as we sit here tonight, there can be uh, in some of our hearts this evening where God is uh, bringing conviction about something we've introduced into our life or reintroduced into our life or some path that we've put ourselves on and we're not heeding uh, what it is that he's telling us to do and, and, and confessing that sin, repenting of that sin and doing what is right. And we need to realize that there is uh, something harder than obeying God's word, even when it involves hard choices like this. And the harder thing is to disobey God's word. Solomon will so harden his heart toward the Lord in this area that he will end up marrying. He will end up with a thousand wives and concubines and a huge portion of them idolaters bringing their false gods into Israel. And so but it all began with a tender conscience that he then did not protect and nurture, but he hardened his heart related to it. And it's an important warning, really, for all of us, because we're all tempted uh, in, to do the same thing when God convicts us of sin. Chapter nine is a record of the visit of the Queen of Sheba to Solomon. And so when the Queen of Sheba heard the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions. She came with a very great retinue, camels that bore spices, gold in abundance, gold, 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 come on, precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was on her heart. And so the motive of the Queen of Sheba coming to see Solomon is that the fame of Solomon has now gone all around the known world at that time. Uh, Sheba was a a part of what we would call today uh, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, that area, 1,200 miles away from Jerusalem. So here is a, a woman here who hears of Solomon's wisdom, and she's willing to make a 2,400-mile round trip by camel, no showers. They used to just deal with odors, with piling on more perfume and all. More spices. And so this was a big deal for a queen to take in a journey like this, 2,400 miles round trip. And, uh, and just because she wanted to see if Solomon was as wise and as uh, wealthy as was reported. And so she came with questions that she was going to test him with. And, and testing was an ancient sport in those days where you would pose these very hard riddles, uh, something a little harder than the SAT exam. And uh, uh, that would put a test to a, re a, a reputedly wise man and then either expose him as not being as wise as declared or re uh, revealing him to be truly wise. And so she wanted to test the validity of his uh, reputation. And so she came with all of this wealth, spoke to him, as the passage says, about everything that was on her heart. And we're told that so Solomon answered all of her questions and there was nothing so difficult for Solomon that he could not explain it to her. So she just lays all of this stuff out and he just boom, 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 boom. Anything else? And he knocked all of them out. I mean, it was, must have been really Really something, nothing so difficult that Solomon couldn't explain it uh, to her. And it's interesting here that you have 
Jesus himself referencing this particular experience, this encounter between the Queen of Sheba and uh, Solomon. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South, speaking of the Queen of Sheba, Jesus said, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders, and says, One day, gentlemen, you are going to be judged by the Queen of Sheba. Because when she heard about the wisdom of Solomon, though she was a queen herself, she traveled the 1,200 miles to hear him for herself. And, uh, and when she came to Jerusalem, she listened intently to everything that Solomon uh, had to say. And the idea is, in contrast to all of that, these religious leaders had access to Jesus, an infinitely greater wisdom than Solomon's, but they didn't heed it, they didn't appreciate Jesus, no sense of humility or awe or wonder concerning Jesus at all. And additionally, they didn't need to travel anywhere. To hear Jesus' wisdom, Jesus came from the right hand of the Father to bring the wisdom to them. And yet there was absolutely no appreciation uh, for it at all. And Jesus warned them that they would be judged and condemned by the Queen of Sheba uh, who sought God's wisdom from Solomon. Can you imagine what the Queen of Sheba would have done if she had been able to come to Jesus? And not the type of Jesus, Solomon, in terms of wisdom. That's what Jesus was saying. Look what from your own book the Queen of Sheba did in response to the wisdom, the God-wisdom of Solomon. And look at how you are treating the wisdom and the revelation of the very Son of God. Queen of Sheba is a model to all seekers. She heard of the fame of Solomon, but that wasn't enough for her. She had to find out for herself personally. She wasn't satisfied with what everybody else was saying about Solomon. She wanted to find out about Solomon herself, to bring the hard questions to him. How much more with Jesus? I'll tell you, never ever take anyone else's testimony concerning Jesus Don't use anybody else's testimony as the basis upon which you judge his wisdom and who he is. I remember being in college and listening to not all instructors, but some instructors speak not very well of Jesus or God and with great authority. And I was glad that I had enough background by that point in my childhood in the Bible to know that they weren't talking about the same God that I knew and the same Jesus that I knew however much I knew him at that point. And so we don't take somebody else's word for every single person in this world has an opportunity to approach Jesus personally in the scriptures, in prayer, pose the greatest questions that we want to ask of him. But when you're going to ask Jesus questions, you have to be willing to accept the answer because he'll always give us an answer. I think that one of the great marvels in heaven, if they marvel over anything in heaven other than God, is not the difficulty of the questions that men and women In the United States of America, this great intellectual center of the world, are posing to God. But the great marvel in heaven is that virtually no great questions are being posed to God. As we just, as a culture, fritter away our lives on the deceitfulness of riches and and the nonsense of covetousness and the material things. Jesus isn't afraid of a single question that we would pose to him. He has the wisdom to answer all questions. But I'll tell you, take your questions to him. Don't take the word from anyone else concerning him. 
You get your own straight scoop concerning him by the Holy Spirit from the scriptures. Nothing wrong with asking somebody else a question, but make sure they can show you something in the Bible related to him. I'll tell you, you think about the access that we have to the wisdom of God. Here she makes this 2,400 mile journey. All I have to do is get up in the morning, roll over on my side, put both of my feet down on the ground, realize that I'm breathing, the heart's still working, all right, another day in front of me. I can sit in that position and instantly begin to ask God for his wisdom in my life. The Bible says in James chapter 1, if any of us lacks wisdom, then we need to just ask God for that wisdom. And he won't make fun of us. He won't upbraid us. Don't you know that? Everybody knows that. I mean, it's right in front of your eyes. Don't you have any common sense? None of that comes from God. If we have a question to ask of God, he's eager to give us the wisdom that we ask of him. And it's instantly accessible, a greater wisdom than even Solomon's. Our portion is greater than the Queen of Sheba. So this is what she came and did. And her conclusion here wasn't just the answering of all of these questions that she had brought, but when the Queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon. Wisdom isn't just expressed in speaking, is it? You can, you can identify a wise person by watching their life, by watching uh, whatever is under their sphere of influence in life, watching their marriage, watching their children, watching their home, watching their business, watching how they conduct themselves in a neighborhood or an apartment complex, uh, the, uh, this kind of thing. And so here is here she is. Uh, she heard the wisdom, but she also saw the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built. And as he she looked at how he ordered his life, the wisdom behind it, the food that he had on his table, how he the seating of his servants at the mealtime, the service of the waiters and their apparel, how they were clothed, how they conducted themselves, his cupbearers, their apparel, his entryway by which he went to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her anymore. So she comes and this woman knows money. She knows wealth. She knows power. She knows wow. And she comes into where Solomon is and she's Absolutely humbled. I mean, she's left uh, speechless in light of not only what she hears, but what she sees. Because the wisdom of God is not only spoken, but it's demonstrated in life. I remember many years ago, I had the privilege of uh, going to India. It's a part of Gospel for Asia's ministry. And we went to a great slum in Bombay. It went, it went as far, it went to the vanishing point. You could not see the end of this slum. And we're talking about a slum where you don't have any running water in any of the houses or the lean-tos and what's put together. Everything's put together by scrap wood, scrap metal, uh, bricks, this, that, and it just goes on as far as in trenches and raw sewage and the dogs everywhere and kids everywhere and a, just a gigantic population. And you just stand there and you look at it coming from this context. It's one of the problems with going to India, though I know India is modernizing today. You go to India and you see some of the places you come back to the United States and you say, somebody says, well, tell me a little bit about it. And your mind just starts to swirl because you can't start with a reference point. You can't say over there. It's well, it's kind of like this here. There's nothing about it over there that is like this here. And you stand there and you look at this thing that goes on as far as the eye can see. And you think, I'm in a movie. This is not real. This can't be happening. You can't have hundreds of thousands of people living in this condition in the world today. And yet as we walked through that slum, GFA took us to some of the different places where there were missionaries who had Indian missionaries who had decided to spend their life relocating out of the villages that they were born in in order to establish a presence for Christ in that great slum. And you would then see their home 
you would see the homes of Christians that had been influenced by the gospel. And I'll tell you, I don't think that anything Solomon built in terms of his palace could compare to it in terms of the contrast with everything else. You'd walk in, everything was neat as a pin, everything in its place, everything spoke about uh, that, 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 that this was important. Here were people that understood that the wisdom of God is not only communicated in what we say, but in how we live and how differently even God's unspoken wisdom, how differently that makes us, different it makes us in the whole wide world. And it's important for us to understand that as Christians, everything about our lives, not just what comes out of our mouth when we witness for the Lord. Everything is to testify and bring glory to the Lord. God's wisdom, again, wisdom, Jesus said, is justified by her children, is justified, earns the right to be called wisdom on the basis of the kind of person that it produces. And then what kind of an environment does that kind of person then build in the middle of the fallenness of this world? I'll tell you, it's very powerful, completely on the other end of the extreme, but as powerful a witness uh, in this day and in this hour at the other end of the socioeconomic uh, uh, standard of things as Solomon, but just as powerful as a witness uh, to the Lord right there in India. And then she said to the king, it was a true report, which I heard uh, in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe their words until I came and saw with my own eyes. And indeed, the half of the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. That's pretty heady stuff to say. I do say, well, what else have you noticed about me? Could you write that down for me so I can have it in print? You exceed the fame of which of which I heard. Happy are your men and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom that they get to be servants and listen to how you handle all these situations. Blessed be the Lord, your God. She recognizes it was a God given wisdom. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be king for the Lord, your God, because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. She then gave the king one hundred and twenty talents uh, of uh, uh, of, of gold, so it's about 9,000 pounds, four and a half tons. And these people knew how to give gifts, didn't they? Man. So I think I'm going to have a little Christmas party this year. Don't forget to uh, include the Queen of Sheba on the list. That's my carnality. Terrible, isn't it? So she gave the king 120 talents of gold, spices in great abundance, precious stones, and never were any spices such as those the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Once they used them up, it was gone. Good stuff. And also the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon uh, who brought gold from Ophir, uh, brought Algum wood and precious stones and the king made walkways of the algum wood for the house of the Lord, for the king's house. Also harps and stringed instruments for the singers associated with the worship. And there were none such as these seen before in the land of Judah. Now Sol King Solomon gave then to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked, much more than she had brought to the king. And so she returned and went to her own country, she and her servants. And so Solomon was not going to be her debtor. Uh, and in, in the light of whoever or whatever she worshipped as God as a God. And uh, so she he bestowed greater gifts upon her as just a witness to the greatness uh, of the Lord. And then she returned home. Now, uh, in verse 13, we begin to get some details about uh, kind of the splendor of Solomon's reign. The weight of gold that came to Solomon each and every year was 666 talents of gold. That's 25 tons of gold a year came in to the treasuries to run the country. I don't know about you, but I would either ask for one more talent of gold or one less talent of gold than have the 666 number associated with my reign. Just a little paranoia of mine. Paranoia is a terrible thing. 
Are you laughing at me? (laughs) Then on top of all of this was what the trading merchants and the traders brought in and all the kings of Arabia and the governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. So he there was great wealth was brought to the country through trade and then also uh, tribute that was offered by these nations that were kind of like satellite nations to to Israel at the time. And King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold. 600 shekels of hammered gold went into each shield, about seven and a half pounds. Uh, so these big shields. So you couldn't use these golds too soft of a metal to use these for military purposes. So they probably used for parades and and, uh, you know, special occasions. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold. These were smaller shields. Uh, 300 shekels of gold went into each one of those, almost four pounds of gold. And the king, he put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. This great building that was built must have been built mostly of, uh, of cedars from Lebanon. Very, very valuable uh, because it was given the name of the forest of Lebanon. It was like walking in and going, wow, am I in the forest or what? So many, uh, so much cedar that was there. And so this Uh, was put on uh, display to add uh, some kind of beauty to that particular building. And moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory, and then he overlaid it with pure gold. That's really something, isn't it? Why make a throne of ivory if you're going to cover up the ivory? See, I'm just way too practical to be making thrones like this. If you make a throne of ivory, make it of ivory. Let everybody see that it's ivory. But he, he's, he's so wealthy in this, he can make it of ivory and then overlay it with pure gold. Of course, gold spoke of uh, royalty and so spoke of his, his reign and the fact that he was king. The throne had six steps, had a footstool of gold, which were, which were fastened to the throne. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat. There were two lions that stood uh, beside the armrest as a part of the throne. So uh, in the ancient world, uh, a lion was considered to be a, a symbol of royalty. Again, lions being uh, the king of beasts and all that kind of thing. So they like to associate that with themselves. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps that led up to the throne. Nothing like this has has had been made for any other kingdom, one of a kind uh, uh, throne in uh, in history up to that point of in time all solomon's drinking vessels were gold and all the vessels of the house of the forest of lebanon were pure gold not one was made of silver because silver was accounted as nothing in the days of solomon just unbelievable wealth at the time for the king's ships went to tarshish with the servants of Hiram, once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes and donkeys. I mean, uh, monkeys. Sounds like somebody's getting bored. Uh, so here's Solomon. He had uh, trading uh, sea vessels that operated in the area of uh, the Red Sea, Suez Canal, that whole area down in there. And then this was a separate navy kind of merchant uh, ships that were made to then make a three year circuit of the Mediterranean to bring back all kinds of wealth and then odd kinds of things. It wasn't unusual for kings in the ancient world to establish a private zoo for their own amusement. Solomon also, we know from the book of Ecclesiastes, was very interested in animals and plants and all this kind of stuff, so probably took a great interest in it as well uh, in terms of learning. And so Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and in uh, wisdom. No reign like his at that time in terms of wisdom and wealth. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put on his heart. So it wasn't just the queen of Sheba. There's a long line of people that were wanting to bring situations before him for God's wisdom. They would, of course, uh, bring a, a proper present or gift in order to gain access to him or to express appreciation. And they would bring articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses and mules at a set rate. Year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen from uh, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and also with the king 
at Jerusalem. And so he reigned over all the kings from the river to the land of the Philistines. As far as the border of Egypt, the king made silver uh, common in, as common in Jerusalem as stones. And he made cedar trees as abundant as sycamores, which are in the lowlands. And they brought horses to Solomon from Egypt and from all the lands. Now, the rest of the acts of Solomon and uh, first and last, are they not written in the book of Nathan the prophet? So there is a, was a book at that time called the book of Nathan the prophet in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite and in the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So here was a reference to an additional book that could have given uh, additional insight to the reign of Solomon. We think to ourselves, well, why doesn't that book exist uh, today? Why did God protect uh, First and Second Chronicles and, and didn't protect this particular book in order for us to have insight into Solomon's life? Because First and Second Chronicles were inspired by the Holy Spirit and this other book was not. And additionally, all that we need to learn from Solomon in his life is found in the book of Second Chronicles, we don't need to know anything more about apes and monkeys or how the thrones or the gold or the, any of these kind of things to understand what the lesson of Solomon's life was. And the lesson of Solomon's life was this. And I repeat it because we'll leave Solomon now for 45 years before we get back to this section of Scripture again. He was a man who possessed Incredible wisdom from God, but who failed to apply it to his own life. And it's a danger for us. There is a great, great tendency on the part of any man or woman who has walked with the Lord for a period of time to begin to think that I to begin to. come to conclusions about my own spirituality on the basis of what I know from the Bible and about God rather than on the basis of what I know and am also obeying. That's the difference. Solomon knew so much, but he did not obey it. And again, the temptation is very real for us. I've known so many people and since 1980 when I got saved. There are so many people who continue to walk with the Lord. There are so many people that don't walk with the Lord anymore. And so many of them got goofed up in this particular area. It became a source of pride in their life. That they were spiritual on the basis of these, this mountain of information. And nothing wrong with that. It's important to know what God's Word says. But then little by little, they cease to apply it to their own life. And the next thing you know, in their particular setting, they've got a thousand wives and concubines and their life is a disaster repeated over and over and over and over again. And so the importance, this is why Solomon's life was repeated kind of in depth to this post-exilic generation. Learn the lesson of Solomon. And I never look at Solomon and I never, I don't say that I never have. I just don't look at him now. I mean, sometimes when you're a new Christian, you look at these people that fail in the scriptures and, you know, you think uh, I could never do that or how dumb could a person be? How many privileges could they have? How could a person harden their heart? Then you walk with God for a while. You, know, you come to know the Lord and you and you're kind of in that six month honeymoon period and you're ready to write your book, A Man of Power and Faith, an autobiography by Damien Kyle. You know? <laughs> and then you start to be tempted by the same things. And it doesn't mean that we fall prey to the same things, but we realize we come from the same gene pool, from the same Adam and Eve. And, and we have the same temptations. And what we do is we look at these people and then we learn from their lives. And it's so important to learn from Solomon's life. God used him in his wisdom 
to produce the greatest period in the history of the nation of Israel. And then ultimately he had to live with and carry a legacy forever of being the one because of his willful disobedience to sow the seeds of idolatry that ultimately led to the destruction of the entire nation of Israel and ultimately to becoming captives to the Assyrians first and then to the Babylonians. So the importance of all of this, knowing, yes, so vital, but obedience. So we ask, you know, tonight, none of us are ever going to be perfect until we see the Lord face to face. Try as we might. There's going to be a daily, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. <laughs> you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But the longer we walk with the Lord, the distance between what we know the Bible says and the practice of our life should always be narrowing. It should never, ever be widening. And it should never, ever stand still for long periods of time. Because when the Holy Spirit's working in our life, He's conforming us on a daily basis into the image of Christ. A lot of people get going and they, and they have a walk with the Lord and they get right here and they go, that's all I want. I don't want to be any more Christ-like than that. Because it will cost me this, it will cost me that, or I don't want to give up that, or I don't want to take that step of faith. Or what. And they just stop and they just park it right there. Finish out the last 30 years of their life right in that place. We can't do it. It's a temptation. That gap between the standard of Scripture and the practice of our life should always be narrowing all the way to our final breath and us entering into eternity. And Solomon violated that. Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over, uh, over Israel for 40 years. And then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, only named son that he had that's named in Scripture, reigned in his place. And we'll pick up the account of Rehoboam uh, next time. So if the worship team would come forward, we'll take an opportunity to spend a few minutes this morning just or this evening um, worshiping the Lord and meditating upon the wonderful truths that we've looked at this evening. Next uh, Sunday night, we'll have a, a, a treat. Uh, Sandy Adams, who will be teaching the Sunday uh, teaching at the men's conference next Saturday. Uh, he'll be teaching at Warehouse the Sunday morning the following day. And then he graciously uh, said that he would come here for Sunday night and teach the evening services. He's a favorite of mine, and I know a favorite of many of yours. And so we look forward to enjoying the ministry of the Word through Sandy uh, next week. So let's uh, spend a few minutes worshiping the Lord.